I'm going to call us to order for uh, what I imagine is the last session of many people's day. Thank you for joining us. Um, I don't know about y'all. I ran downstairs hoping to grab coffee at Starbucks and looked at the line and knew I wasn't going to make it. So um, we'll do our best to keep each other energized, right? <laughs> Um, so we are here to talk about career services for non-academic careers this afternoon. Whoa. <laughs> um, and so this is uh, sponsored by the Applied Religious Studies Working Group, which is a newly minted working group here at AAR, uh, essentially focused on addressing the issue of scholars who want to go into non-academic career paths, whether that's because of the realities of the job market, which, of course, are very heavy realities or because for many of us I am one of them you get part way through grad school and you finally really start to get a grasp on what a faculty career looks like and you realize you don't want that for whatever reason um, so I think we have historically not been very good at supporting students and early career scholars who are thinking about transitioning out of the Academy and we're hoping to change that conversation and start to figure out together how we can create better supports for people who are exploring these possibilities and also keeping people who are engaged in public scholarship and using their religious studies training out in the world doing things other than the academy you know engaged in the conversation with AAR because you know public understanding of religion is an important thing for AAR and it's an important thing for public discourse I think we can all agree especially right now so um, I want to thank all of our panelists for joining us today um, I was just noting as we were all chatting up here of the five people sitting at this table, four of us are actually alt-ac ourselves. We are people who have earned PhDs in the humanities and moved into other fields and find ourselves very committed to helping others do the same. Um, so I'm just going to introduce everybody very briefly and then um, we'll ask some questions and have some open conversation. I want to leave plenty of time for questions and conversation with the audience as well. Um, so immediately to my left is Courtney, you're going to have to pronounce your last Worsima. name. Courtney Worsima, uh, who's the Assistant Director of Graduate Career Development in the UChicago Grad Experience at the University of Chicago, which is a university-wide initiative that is helping do um, career development and preparation for people both looking to move into academic work and non-academic work. And Courtney, if I understand your work correctly, you oversee the PATHS program, which focuses on graduate scholars in the humanities in particular and helping outfit them for non-academic career uh, paths. Next to her is Susanna Laramie Kidd who is a Mellon, or was a Mellon ACLS public fellow. So she's going to be talking a little bit about that public fellowship program and how that um, helped her transition and what fellowship programs like that, you know, sort of what role they can play in helping scholars move out into more non-faculty positions. Um, she's now with the Los Angeles County Arts Commission. Uh, next to her is Amy Defabaugh, who is a member of the Working Group on Applied Religious Studies and is uh, ABD, actually, at Temple University in Religious Studies herself, and also the Director of Career Service, or excuse me, the um, Assistant Director of Academic Affairs in Arts and Sciences, right? Uh, the College of Liberal Arts. The College yes. of Liberal Arts at yes. Temple University. And then finally on the end is Susan Lawler, who is from just across the river at Harvard Divinity School, <laughs> where she's been the Director of Career Services for how long now, Susan? Nine years. Nine years. Um, so I 
we have a range of institutional placement from big umbrella down to individual fellowship program. We also have people who have a range of experience. So I'm looking forward to a conversation from a variety of perspectives about things that are already happening, supporting scholars who are making moves into non-faculty career paths, and things that we could be developing and doing better. Um, so with that, if, oh, I'm sorry, guys. I'm Christine Hutchison-Jones. I'm the chair of the Applied Religious Studies uh, Working Group, and I earned my PhD in American Religious History at Boston University. Um, I was a staff person full-time in my department while I was a PhD student, and in some ways that was not a good thing. In some ways that was a very good thing. Um, it, I walked away from my PhD program with a pretty nice administrative resume. Uh, which was very helpful. I also was behind the curtain on academic politics, both in the department and at a higher level, um, very early. So the scales were removed from my eyes very early about what it looks like to be a faculty member. Um, and for, for various reasons, I you know realized that wasn't the path I wanted to take. Also, it gave me an opportunity. I had a wonderful boss who gave me a lot of room to develop in my position and uh, that gave me the opportunity to see the ways in which being in administration and event coordination is actually intellectual work. And you are you know, fostering academic conversations and supporting research and getting to plug in your own research questions along the way and shape the conversation and also supporting uh, education. So I, I um, was just saying I finished my dissertation and defended in April of 2011. I graduated in May. I wrapped up my last class in June, and I started a staff position in the Harvard Provost's office that July. Um, from there, I moved into the role I have now, which is administrative director of the Petrie Flom Center for Health Law Policy, Biotechnology, and Bioethics at Harvard Law School. So um, if we could start, if each of you would just say a little bit about the programs that you're associated with and what they do for scholars who are thinking about moving off of an academic track. Hi, everybody. Um, so I'll, I'll tell you a little bit about my role at UChicago. Um, I'm in a program in the provost's office, so not associated with uh, the Divinity School at UChicago, but we kind of work across the divisions and schools at the university and try to serve all of the students. So I'm on a team of advisors, I think, most have um, a PhD and we, we end up serving different populations on campus um, and I serve the, the humanities students there. Um, and in particular, um, last summer UChicago got a grant from the National Endowment for the Humanities as part of its Next Gen PhD program, um, which is intended to, to rethink not only the process of earning a doctorate, but also its outcomes and how uh, scholars can be trained to do many sorts of things. So uh, the name of our, our next-gen program is PATHS. Um, everyone needs an acronym. It stands for Professional Advancement and Training for Humanities Scholars. Um, and we, we define that broadly and purposefully as, as humanities so that you know, folks in religious studies but also history, literature um, are, are all included and in conversation. Um, and the, the program engages students along three fronts, uh, or it, it has kind of three prongs. We have a suite of programs that, that help students um, develop skills and explore career possibilities. Um, we're also actively engaging employers and alumni to try to create new opportunities for uh, students 
uh, doctoral students in the humanities. And then we're also at work trying to change culture on campus, um, particularly uh, departmental cultures, some of which are very receptive to this sort of thing, others of which, um, you know, the, the challenge is ongoing. Um, and I'll quickly mention a couple uh, student-facing programs that we do. I'm happy to talk more about these in, in detail. Um, we do one-on-one -on -one career advising. I'd say that's our most popular uh, resource for humanities students who really appreciate the one-on-one -on -one, um, structure. And that can be focused on, we call it AING, Academia, Industry, Nonprofit, Government, whatever you'd like to talk about. Um, we run an internship program where students can pitch and uh, design their own summer internship. We offer oral communications and writing training, particularly focused on the public humanities, um, and a variety of workshops and career conversations that, like I said, help students explore career possibilities. Um, so as I said, happy to go into more detail, but I just wanted to give you a general idea of, of some of the things we're involved in. So um, the ACLS, the American Council of Learned Societies, of which the American Academy of Religion is a member of the uh, American Council of Learned Societies, is most known for its funding of humanities research that's traditional, traditionally academic research. But in 2000, I think it first year was 2010, um, they created a, f a fellowship program called the... Um, ACLS Public Fellows Program, now called the Mellon ACLS Public Fellows Program, to encourage, um, to create pathways, uh, literal career pathways for humanities PhDs in nonprofit and public sector uh, careers. And so the way the fellowship program is designed is designed as both a capacity building for uh, nonprofits and um, government uh, organizations as well as uh, career and professional development experiences for the PhDs, um, recent PhDs. And so the organizations apply to host a fellow. So they create a position, which they do not already have that that position is sort of building capacity in some way. Some some position that they think that they that a PhD uh, someone with humanities skills uh, might be helpful, and the um, so the those positions are different every year, and then the PhD uh, recipients apply for those specific positions as jobs uh, through the fellowship program. But it's not uh, we don't you don't apply for the fellowship program broadly. You apply for a specific position. Um, and you, you know, interview. So the the ACLS vets basically vets the applicants and and um, make sure the PhD students are eligible and things like that. But the organizations choose the fellows, and so it's set up as a two year fellowship in which the ACLS pays uh, the salary directly to the organization, who then pays the fellow. Um, and there are a couple of other career so professional development supports built into the program. Uh, the first is that every fellow has a mentor, um, which typically is somebody else in somebody in their organization who can sort of help them 
uh, strategize and understand how to move through a, the new professional workplace um, and who is not their supervisor, right? That's, and then um, there's a pot of money specifically for professional development uh, that the fellow can use as they wish during the fellowship period. Um, it cannot be used for academic conferences, so it cannot be used to come to the AAR, but they do also uh, support our membership in the um, learned societies that we are part of. So, so various ways of whatever the fellow feels would be the correct training for whatever they're considering uh, going forward. And then the fellows come, the fellows come together and there's some um, workshop and seminars that we do together once during the fellowship. And they, the program has also experimented over time and I'm very interested to hear about um, other what other programs are doing, but experimented with what kinds of other career services have been built into the program. So the year that, um, or my fellowship cohort also received individualized career counseling. Um, that there were some webinars that we were offered thinking about skills and applying for uh, applying for jobs and providing some of those skills for what's next after the fellowship. Um, and then we had the opportunity to sign up for virtual um, career counseling because the fellows are placed all over the country. So it, it makes getting together uh, a little bit difficult. And um, and with that, you know, document review, having somebody look at your resume, look at cover letters, things that you might be considering. So that individualized piece uh, as well. So and the and and then the last last thing I'll say about it is that it's designed to be op um, open for exploration for both the organization that receives the fellow and the fellow so that the fellow may decide that they don't want this, you know, to work in this kind of workplace or want to do something else completely or, um, and so it's a two year term and you can walk away after that. Um, and also organizations are free to then hire someone if they feel like, oh, this was a great fit. Everybody loved it we're going to actually build this position into our organization and but you cannot then they would be providing the funding for that that position. So that's sort of the capacity building model both for showing PhDs what they can do and giving them the space to explore but also showing organizations what kinds of things they might actually gain in their organization by employing a PhD. Hi everyone. Um, so in my role um, as Assistant Director of Academic Affairs um, for the College of Liberal Arts at Temple, um, I work in the Dean's Office um, and our college has both uh, humanities and social science programs. Um, everything from psychology to political science to religion, uh, English, philosophy. Um, and some of those programs we found out are better at professional development for their graduate students than others. And so Last year, um, as a new member of the Dean's Office team, um, I decided that we should develop and implement a graduate student professional development series college-wide. Um, so that would be open to any liberal arts graduate student, um, you know, currently in the program. 
And what we did or what we wanted to do and the goals of the program um, were to offer grad students the opportunity to explore a multitude of career options, um, both in and outside the academy. Um, also to give students um, the space to converse and collaborate across disciplines. Even within the College of Liberal Arts, our departments are very insular. So it wasn't until I sort of started doing this work a couple years ago or started taking an interest in this work a couple years ago as a graduate student that I started meeting graduate students in sociology or political science outside of my own department. Um, and we also, as part of this um, program, we wanted to start changing faculty perception and attitude towards non-academic careers. Um, and this is a very sort of loaded topic, and I'm sure we'll probably talk about it a little bit more. And then finally, we wanted to better prepare students to enter the academic and non-academic job markets. So some of the programming that we, um, that we started doing uh, last year and have continued doing this year was things like grant writing workshops, um, institutional review board info sessions, um, events like promoting your career through social media, um, careers beyond the academy in which we brought um, liberal arts alumni back to talk to uh, current graduate students about their non-academic jobs and sort of how they made that transition um, from being in the academy to not being in the academy. Um, this year we're going to try a non-academic writing workshop um, primarily focused on op-ed, but really just to focus on or to teach current graduate students how to get rid of their jargon and write for a larger audience. Um, and then very simply, we, we established for the first time ever uh, two years ago a graduate student orientation. For the entire for the entire college, um, you know, departments would have their own orientations, but those orientations would usually leave out either the college-wide resources or the university-wide resources. So we had departments not telling graduate students about our fellowship advising office, um, not telling graduate students that we are holding these info sessions to turn your CV into a resume. Um, so it was like these very small changes that, um, that we started doing um, that were really beneficial. And then we also um, started doing um, we started bringing in guest speakers who were sort of both doing this work and writing about this work. Um, we also made faculty come to working dinners with those guest speakers, which I can talk a little bit more about that. Um, that was sort of our way of, you know, attempting to change the faculty perception about that. Um, and I'm happy to talk about some of those speakers as well. Um, but I'm also sort of in this weird stage where I'm, you know, as Chrissy said, I'm currently a PhD student. Um, I'm ABD. I'm currently writing, hopefully be done in the spring. Um, but I've been in this this um, administrative position for almost two years now, started in the registrar's office while I was also teaching. Um, and it has really opened up a lot of opportunities for me. Um, so I'll leave it there and hopefully we can talk more about that. Yeah. Thanks. <clears throat> I'm, again, I'm Susan Lawler, and I'm Director of Career Services at the Harvard Divinity School. I think it would be helpful for me if I had a sense of who you all were. And I, I'm curious as to how many of you are enrolled in PhD programs right now, or students, your graduate students right now. Okay. And are there folks here? I know we invited career services professionals from local universities to join us for some of these sessions. Do we have any of those folks here? 
No. So everyone else, um, kind of degree holders um, out in the market in some sense. Okay, it's great. Thank you. That that helps. Um, let me go back to, yes, I have been at the Divinity School for nine years, and I want to hopefully give you some concrete things that, based on my experience working with religion students at the master's and doctoral level, might be helpful to you. Um, our school has a fairly small population, about 340 graduate students that we work with. Many of them come into our master's program specifically because they are interested in pursuing a PhD degree. That's about 70% of our students who are entering. When they graduate, it's really more like 40% are still interested in that route. So a lot of the work that's going on while students are with us for two or three years really has to do with information about alternative career paths, and we place a lot of emphasis on that. Um, again, I've been here for nine years. My background, I am not the uh, um, alt-careers PhD person. I have a bachelor's and master's degree myself. But I have a career that started in educational administration, working program management with MBA students. I spent a time working with IBM in their e-learning business. And I ran a state agency here in Massachusetts that delivered career services to um, to folks who are citizens of the Commonwealth. I, I am in my job because I have always been an educational management professional, but I think because I also have a diversity of work experience that I brought to a school that was hoping that could actually roll over and be of use to our students who are considering alternative paths. Not surprisingly, as I look at our graduates today, they're working in all the fields that have been named in terms of government and industry and nonprofit. They're working in the arts. They're working as writers. They're doing many things that have begun with the skills they developed in their graduate work and before, um, but they've taken them in new directions. And a part of our work is to hopefully help them figure that out. What I wanted to do is to focus on, on four things, and we can talk about them in more detail, but four things that I think are very important in giving advice to people who are making decisions, whether still in a discernment stage or in an actual job search stage of what they're doing. And the first is to really encourage engagement with the career services offices within your own institution or school. Um, schools operate very differently. Quite often, career services is a centralized function. Quite often, for graduate students, it will be centralized. At some schools like mine, it is very diverse. Every tub is on its own bottom, and each has a very separate career services that's tailored to that student population. Schools will look at their undergraduates and graduates differently, but they will also often have very good services for alumni and investigating those if you haven't already I think is something that can be very very valuable so to fall back both to undergraduate previous graduate work and where you may be students now or where you hold your degrees would be a major recommendation that I would have there are opportunities there again to develop potential career paths to work on specific things around job search and really to get uh, 
to have an opportunity to facilitate connections such as with alumni, which I think will come up over and over as a really key piece of the, the valuable place more information can be gathered on alternative careers. Best practices for job search, resumes and CVs and cover letters and interviews and salary negotiation, all of that is the core of the work that career services does on a regular basis. So checking back in with them if you haven't in a while might be a good idea. The second piece I wanted to just mention is, um, again, I think it's already come up, the importance of continuing to develop skills that are aligned with your interests. And that can be done in many forms. It can be the workshops and can be um, series that are, of events that are offered within schools. It can be volunteer work. It, it can be internships, whether they're paid or non-paid, but there's real skill development that can occur both as a student and after that align with the career fields that are of most interest. And again, we can talk about it more in more detail, but I think it's a really important area for us to look at. The third one I wanted to mention was networking. We have an operating principle in our office called ABC Always Be Connecting. And it really is about making connections to help forward the directions you're most interested in. Uh, networking sometimes is seen as a bit disingenuous. It's absolutely something that I think in a more healthy way should be looked at as a two-way street. And we, we certainly find with, with our alumni, with professionals in the field, with professional associations, um, opportunities to really learn about diverse career paths abound. And you have access to folks through your own circles that I'd love to see people take more advantage of and we can talk about it. But I think it's a real key to successfully making transitions. The, the fourth piece I, I wanted to make sure we talked about, and again, I think it'll, it'll come up, is just identifying resources to explore your own um, research in terms of alternative careers and job search and what are those resources. There are some excellent um, opportunities to read up on things through the AAR Employment Services website. I know some of it's a little dated, but I'm going to help to uh, make sure we get some more things in there as well. I think there are um, some very good books and articles and blogs out there. Um, one of my favorite is a book called Getting Unstuck um, by Tim Butler, which has got some interesting work that you can do as well as exercises that can be terrific. There's another one that uh, one of my colleagues in FAS often recommends called um, So What Are You Going to Do With That? which is really about the PhD. You may be familiar with it. It's Susan Bazella and Maggie DeBullius. Um, the Versatile PhD is a great website, which often I point people to. I personally like Jobs on Toast, which is a site that does a really nice job of identifying skills that most PhDs have. If, if you really can start with general skills that have been developed through your work and then begin to apply those to the work you're interested in, I think that's a great way to start. And it's a website that really does a nice job with, with giving you a jump start there. Um, there, there are more. We can talk about them. Those are things I wanted to tee up as part of the conversation to be thinking about. There are resources out there for you and offices that can be helpful. And we've got some 
great examples of specific ways of getting through things here today. Thank you. So thank you, everybody. I'm going to start by um, pulling out some themes that I heard sort of coming from everyone up here. First is that everyone's dealing with academic and non-academic prep in your programming. You're not abandoning the academic path. You're doing this alongside. It really is another plan A, right? That this doesn't have to be walking away from the faculty dream, nor does it have to be walking away from one of our scholars last night on the panel we held with people who have moved into non-faculty careers pointed out that she hasn't given up her scholarship and she made a um, plug for us. She put it, the joys of publishing on your own clock, not against the tenure clock, and getting to do scholarship and writing the way she wants to. Um, so scholarship doesn't stop. And also exploring these options isn't an abandonment of continuing to pursue that academic goal. Um, also, the cross-disciplinary nature of the work that a lot of you are doing, it seems. Um, all of these programs are looking to connect departments to one another and see the ways. And this was something that came up with the faculty we had on our panel session um, before this one, that departments are finding that connecting with other programs, figuring out what other programs are doing and letting students learn from each other is a good thing, which then points to the alumni networking question, which has been raised here, that all of these programs right down to the ACLS Mellon Fellows, you're, they're, you're getting connected back to that community. Mm -hmm. um, so learning from each other. What was it? Always be connecting, Susan? Yep, you got um, it. ABC. You know, mm -hmm. There's so much that we can learn just from talking to each other about these things, um, which then brings me to the point that I think um, Courtney and Amy may have raised more forcefully um, dealing with uh, resistance in the culture. How often do we not talk to the people around us about thinking about doing something other than the faculty trajectory because we're afraid of who it's going to get back to and how it might impact us? So part of what seems to be going on with a lot of this programming, and I know is part of our conversations in Applied Religious Studies, is culture change around non-academic options or hybrid careers. Um, I had a conversation today with Carrie Danner, who's the head of the contingent faculty workforce uh, or a working group. And um, we, we talked a lot about the false dichotomy that you either are contingent faculty or are moving into a non-faculty career, when in fact, the reality is many people want to continue teaching and do continue teaching while still doing other things. So, um, getting rid of some of the assumptions and the false dichotomies and the stigma around this conversation, I think is an important piece here too. Um, so those are the things that jumped out at me. Um, I guess the last piece would be that, you know, Courtney, you said you're actively cultivating, um, people in industry and government and places to provide internships and partner with the school. And um, what was it you said? AING, academic industry, nonprofit and government. So you're actively cultivating programs. And then the Mellon ACLS program is designed to help organizations think about why a PhD, you know, job candidate would be good for them. Um, I'd like to hear all of you say a little bit more about 
that piece of it, how to communicate to employers the value added that comes from bringing someone on board with a graduate degree, with graduate training in the humanities in particular. Um, and I think for the students, so, you know, the bulk of my job, especially during the, the quarters, is one-on-one is -on -one student advising. And I think that's such a, a good question because that's what we often spend a lot of time working on and talking about. Um, so I can address this both from the, you know, one-on-one -on -one, uh, student advising level, but also structurally some of the things we're thinking about and trying to do. So on our team, we do have um, one person whose job it is to engage employers and alumni. Um, and there are a lot of ways we do that. We bring employers and alum, uh, alums to campus to uh, hold info sessions and actively recruit. Of course, this happens more in, in some industries than probably the ones that tend to employ humanities folks. But nevertheless, when we have someone from Google or a bank or, or something, we can at least broach the topic with them. Have you thought about the ways that the variety of, of uh, students at U Chicago might fit into your organization. And so again, this is, you know, baby steps forward. Um, but we're just trying to get the word out there that the folks with humanities PhDs are incredibly talented and fabulous and could really contribute to your organization. Um, so that's part of it. We also have a, a graduate student only career fair, where same thing, um, students and employers can engage. But I think our best sort of structural approach to this has actually been to use the alumni of PhD programs who are working in um, market research or consulting or banking or nonprofits, museums, and say, you know, you know how important your role is in this organization. How can we create pathways for more people like you? Um, so to give a, a micro example of this, I, I was working with an alum from one of our master's programs in humanities who now wants to take on um, a master's student intern because she knows the value that critical thinking and those sorts of skills bring to the table. So I, I just totally agree with the uh, suggestions that the alumni network and, and others who've been through this process, that's so vital to you know, changing the conversation writ large. Um, so that's programmatically. Individually, when working with students, I do emphasize, you know, you have things that don't just define you as a religious studies scholar, but as a humanist more broadly. And I think the more you can think about yourself that way, not just as a, a narrow subspecialist, but as someone with this broader package of writing and thinking um, and speaking skills, that, that helps you when you're communicating with employers. But you also really do need to meet people where they are. Um, as one of our uh, consulting advisors said, if you can't explain to someone how your dissertation connects to the organization, how can you expect them to do that? So it is an, an intellectual process, and, and it is work to think about how um, your topic and your skills might, might connect with someone who is doing something quite different. But I also think it's work that folks in the humanities are especially primed to do, right? We think across cultures, we think about connections, we think about audience and how to communicate effectively. Um, so the more you talk to people and alumni and kind of practice that skill, I think the easier it becomes. And so, I mean, as a uh, alumni fellow, I you know don't have all of the view of how the ASLS has 
really developed these relationships with the host organizations, but it from just even from being from my position and from uh, seeing has how the program has developed. Because I actually in 2010 when they started the program wanted to apply, but I wasn't eligible yet because I hadn't finished my PhD. Um, so I have sort of watched it grow. So uh, the ACLS really sees. I mean, the people who run the program who are great. They they're program officers. They they are grant makers, and they see this as building a grant portfolio. And so they have uh, really done a lot of personal legwork. I think with uh, organizations that they think would be good hosts. Uh, and I've seen some of that uh, and since in the beginning in 2010, I think there were five fellows and now it's between 20 and 22 fellows per year. So it's, it's grown in terms of basically how many host organizations can, who are applying uh, to have fellows. And, um, and that has, has grown in particular industries so that one of the first fellows was at the um, City of New York Department of Cultural Affairs. My fellowship was actually at the LA County Arts Commission, which is, uh, the names are different, but they're similar kinds of organizations. And it's sort of within this uh, local arts agency, local government world, it word started to get around, right? So they had a fellow at the, they had a fellow at the San Francisco Arts Commission, uh, which interacts with our Arts Commission and that, and that, so we learned, uh, the Arts Commission learned about the program through interacting with the fellows, basically. Um, in that sector, um, there was one at the City of LA Department of Cultural Affairs as well. And so that, that sort of idea of, oh yeah, this, we should get this, we should get a fellow because seeing how seeing a fellow out there in the world is the is sort of the recruitment so different so that local arts agencies have been really um sort of subscribing to this um to the program uh lots of museums uh and federal government um connections so it's sort of building those connections in a sector that then grow um, and, and, and it is a lot through alumni, right? Because now, you know, oh, and I, one thing I will say is that we were required to use our title that, that the Mellon ACLS public fellow was part of our job title and we always had to use it. So that means that we're constantly identifying ourselves out in the world and people have asked, you know, what does that mean? Or, or at least it gets the idea that that's out there and it's, it's something that could, people can do. So. I just want to jump in for a moment with a sidebar. Um, one of the things that we've talked about a lot in the last couple of days uh, in our working group is ha the importance of seeing personal narratives, like these are people who have done this. Um, and I'd like to point out that Susanna didn't do work on art in her studies. So it's not like she went into a fellowship on you know, related to the arts because she had done a PhD that was directly related to this subject. And I think that you know comes back to Courtney talking about talking to Google about the value added that someone with a PhD in the humanities can bring to their organization. You don't have to walk in knowing programming language necessarily for you to bring value to that space. Um, so I just wanted to, to highlight that point as we you know continue to move down the line. Um, I, I should say that we have just started within the past few years thinking about offering internships or figuring that out. Um, 
I'm a huge proponent of it, but currently the humanities programs in our college do not offer any internship opportunities, which I think is a uh, missed opportunity. Um, and I, but what we do, um, like I mentioned, we have an event um, each year called Careers Beyond the Academy, in which we um, we hopefully choose or try to engage with fac um, with uh, alumni, liberal arts graduate alumni, um, and we try to get a diversity of representation from across the humanities and social sciences. So this past year, we had someone who had a PhD in religion and was an associate director of the Inside Out program, which is this prison exchange program through Temple University, um, where there's both um, inside classes and outside classes. Um, and then we had an economist who was working at a Wilmington Trust Bank. Um, and then we had um, an ACL S fellow um, who was doing who was a public uh, history person and was working uh, for a Quaker institution in Philadelphia and then um, we had a sociologist who was working at a research analyst um, as a research analyst for a large uh, pharmaceutical company um, and students really enjoyed that connecting with those alumni and we're going to do it again with another sort of slew of of alumni um, and I wonder I think part of the reason that we're sort of hesitant about offering internship opportunities is because currently we we have no way of guaranteeing credit for those opportunities. And my main concern, the reason I want to figure that out before we start offering these opportunities um, or making these connections um, is I, I worry about asking graduate students to do more. I worry about asking graduate students to do, I mean, even in this programming, and we can talk more about the sort of complications and setbacks and failures with these programming, uh, with these programs, but I worry, um, you know, graduate students are already doing coursework and teaching and research, publishing, all of these other things to, in preparation to go on the academic job market, I always worry about asking them to do more on top of that. Um, so this is something that we've been thinking about and I think it would be a really great opportunity, but I also wanna make sure that graduate students um, are able to do it, um, that it either counts towards their degree or um, counts in some other way, so. Okay. So I, I think I heard the original question, how do you talk to employers about the skills that folks with humanities <laughs> degrees have? Is that? I, yes, some sort of version of that. You know, how 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 do you, as career services officers, either connect with employers or help students think about who they might connect with? You know, building those bridges. You you know, the interesting thing is we at my school we don't do a lot of outreach around that, and in those instances where I have tried, I have been successful and I have generated interest, but I haven't necessarily had the students to fill the internships, the summer jobs, or the full-time positions that were generated. Mostly it's because we don't have critical mass around any particular interest area. <laughs> so I have chosen deliberately to focus on the individual student in helping understand what their interests are, what their skill set is, how that can be articulated to an employer in their field of interest. And that's a different 
way of approaching the issue, but one that works in the environment that I'm working in. And we've been successful at that. I think really hard conversations about articulating the value of your degree. What are the skills that are coming out from your degree? What other things have you picked up? What does the employer or the industry you're interested in require? Who's successful there? The alumni come back in again. They can help to define some of those things, and we help to make those connections. That's it. Um, I've actually been thinking quite a bit about the internships question um, because, and partly because the fellowship program is it's not an internship, but it has some mm -hmm. similarities. And I actually, uh, before I got the ACLS Public Fellows um, position, because I actually applied one year and didn't get it and then applied the second year, super committed. Um, and um, I'm nothing but not stubborn is how I got through a PhD. Um, but I actually had a different internship before I did the ACLS Public Fellows Program. And when I, after I completed my PhD, I had, an, and this was without any institutional support, I was asking pretty much anybody I knew who um, was not an academic, I was telling them what my skills were and how I was looking to use them in a very open kind of way, just thinking generally about nonprofit work I was already thinking about program evaluation um, and in that process found somebody who was like oh what you're describing sounds like what we do at our office and he was an IT auditor at the city of Atlanta and I didn't believe I didn't believe him um, and he's like you know we published these public reports and uh, you know, take a look and let's talk, let's talk about it. And I looked at these reports and I saw that the methodologies that are using, they were, so what they were doing is performance auditing. So I didn't know about performance auditing. So I did, hadn't, I had no way of knowing what that was. And, but the methodologies were, you know, document review, site visits, there were interviews, all these things that somebody as a qualitative, with a qualitative research background, um, I could totally do and was very interested in doing. Um, and, they were very open to, uh, they had an internship, a paid internship program that was typically for undergraduates, and they were open to modifying that for me to try it out. Um, I got paid uh, a better wage than an undergraduate intern would, and after six months, when officially the internship was over, I stayed at a, a um, senior performance auditor wage part-time because that's what we had negotiated and they were open to allowing me to explore that. And I think in some ways they were sort of a particular workplace um, and that they were very interested in, they were more interested in having good people with good analytical skills than um, really caring that much about my, you know, obviously didn't care about my academic background. They had other people with PhDs, but nobody with a really a humanities PhD. Uh, working there and so I I really think that that was it was so crucial for me and if there are ways to uh, cultivate relationships with employers that are really open in that kind of way and I never thought I would work in local government so having that space for for me to explore learn how to translate my skills learn how to work on a team learn how to do all kinds of things that are really necessary in a um, in the public sector, and now I I'm, I hope that I will stay in the public sector, and I, not what I thought I was going to do. So that internship experience 
was really helpful is it was also really key for it to be paid. I don't, I don't think it should be school credit. I think it should yeah. be paid. Yeah. So, yeah. I want to just quickly put in a plug for LinkedIn. Um, many scholars don't have LinkedIn pages. Uh, it's a handy way to keep track of people you've met. It's also a very handy way to find out if you know someone who knows someone that you want to connect with. Um, because LinkedIn has this fancy feature where you go in and you click on a person who may be a hiring manager or a faculty person you want to meet or whatever, and it shows you connections that you have in common with this person. So then you can email the person that you know in common and say, hey, do you know this person? Would you be willing to introduce me? Um, and I think a really important thing to pull out of Susanna's comment there is you know, don't be afraid to ask. Most of the time, people are happy to help out. Um, if they aren't, they're probably just not going to answer your email, so it's not going to be that painful. But more often, far more often than not, people are happy to help out. Um, and again, LinkedIn is a really handy way of doing sort of, an, you know, keeping an inventory of folks you've met, had conversations with, and seeing who else they're connected with. And you never know when those things are going to come full circle. And if I could just say one more thing about LinkedIn, not that I love LinkedIn or anything, but um, we talked about this sometime yesterday during either the committee or another panel that if you are exploring alternative academic jobs or jobs in some other industry, um, it is a great way to learn the lingo um, of those careers. Um, like when I started in the dean's office, I had no idea what a deliverable was, and now I do. Um, but not, and I mean, it's because I worked in, I'm working in this position, but it's also because I, I am, because I advise graduate students on these other job opportunities, I am constantly on LinkedIn looking at these things and you just sort of pick it up and it helps when you're writing cover letters and all of those other things that you have to do, so. I ask how many of you are on LinkedIn right now. Good. All right. Yay. That's Good. great. That's great. Good. I am not being paid to advertise no, LinkedIn. I just think it fills a niche that I don't think anything else quite does. Yeah. And it has really filled that niche. It has kind of, you know, taken up that space. Um, but that was a nice segue. Thank you, Amy, for the fact that, you know, I, this is a process of translation. We know how to translate. We were all forced to take some language classes, even if, like me, you did American religion. Um, we're translating, right? It's not that we don't have skills and knowledge that are useful. It's that we have to learn how to speak someone else's language in explaining them. Because, right, you know, when you come out of your PhD, you know the academic jargon for what you do. And you probably have like a three paragraph statement that's your boiled down version. So you have to figure out how to get that down to an elevator pitch that's going to be more digestible for someone who's not in academia, but also how to speak their language. Because you do have skills and knowledge. It's, you know, I think that often we get the sense that we're not learning anything that's useful outside of the academy. Not true. We just aren't learning how to tell people outside of the academy how we're useful, right? Or what we want to do and are good at. Um, also, uh, following on something Courtney said earlier about the value of humanism broadly, I would just like to throw in a specific plug for religious studies and theological studies, religious literacy. We bring religious literacy and cultural literacy to the table that is so desperately needed. 
we need smart journalists who know about religion. We need people working in government and nonprofits who are sensitive to religious difference and cultural difference and the way that impacts, you know, people receiving information or goods or services. The religious literacy factor is huge and I think is is really a key point for those of us in, who are trained in religious and theological studies. Um, everyone I know who's got graduate training in religion who has moved into something else uses it in that space. They use that religious literacy a lot and many of them are very clear on the fact that it gives them a leg up in what they're doing. And this is people who are in journalism. This is people who are in publishing. This is people who are in healthcare fields. So I think that's you know something I would say about religion and the theology specifically is we've got that that we're bringing to the table. Um, so I guess um, my last question then would be, in addition to LinkedIn, what would you recommend for learning how to translate skills, interests, abilities into a language that people outside of the academy will understand? Um, I think the, the framework that I find most helpful is actually to treat it as a research project. So it is learning a new language, as you all were saying. Um, there are a lot of different ways to do that. Online communities are great. Um, reading job descriptions is great. But ab above all, I would encourage you as, as quickly as you can to get um, you know, not just stay online, but move into the real world, go talk to, to human beings who are, are doing this work. And that, I think, is the, the quickest path from, from A to B in terms of understanding that language. There are also specific skills that are helpful to pick up, you know, writing a, a cover letter and a resume and those sorts of things. But I think that the actual thing that takes the most time um, is not sending out job applications. It's all the work you have to do to help prepare yourself to, to write that cover letter. Um, and in some cases, it may not be just a matter of, of having conversations with alumni or employers. You might want to do an internship or volunteer or something more immersive to help speed up that process. And in some cases, that may be necessary um, for someone who is looking to hire you but isn't exactly sure if this will be a, a good fit, an internship or volunteer experience can be kind of a low stakes opportunity for both parties to like try something out. Um, so so yes, treat it as, as a project that takes time um, that you will have to be invested in. It, it's, um, well, I think one of the problems that we're trying to solve in, in our work is not having this be something that people turn to in year six or seven at the end of the PhD, but something people are thinking about early on so they have time to prepare themselves. Um, and just doing a little bit over time, I think, makes uh, it easier and makes the, the transition smoother more generally. And just to follow on that, I know a lot of this conversation has been geared towards people who are still in graduate school, but our audience is people who are mostly already out. And so maybe the thing to pull out from Courtney's comments there is recognizing this is going to take time. And if it doesn't happen immediately, once you've decided it's, you know, time you want to make a change, that doesn't mean that it's, your, your process is done or you should just stop trying. It's something that's going to take some time um, that's normal and fine and you'll get there, right? This is, you know, not, oh, I didn't have the skills. They didn't want me. Obviously, I should just keep doing what I'm doing. Um. I agree with all of that, um, but there's one thing I think that I think we're taking a little bit for granted that we should just sort of put on the table as well is that employers 
outside of the academy are interested in skills, not in like subject matter matter expertise, right? So um, I did, there are a number of things that I did um, read very carefully. So what are you going to do with that? The book about using, um, you know, moving into a different career with a PhD. And some of the activities in there are like looking at your work experience and then listing out all the skills that you used in those settings um, and building your um, CV, you know, into a resume by thinking about skills. And so I think that can also be something that would be uh, helpful in graduate programs to think a little bit more about building skills. And so what the the other thing that you've also, it's also been, we've been mentioning it, is the idea of um, inter, informational interviewing, which is kind of like a, it's also a jargony kind of term, but it's really just reaching out to, it's a certain kind of networking of reaching out to someone and saying, hey, I'm thinking about this career. Would you be willing to meet with me for like, 30 minutes so you can tell me how you got to where you are and people are super generous to talk about these things and it really helps to think about what skills are necessary in that environment you might actually ask them so if you were looking to hire somebody what skills would you be looking for and then you can look at your your experience and think about what you might need to build out on that point experience all of your experience all of it. Right. We are taught right. to narrow our CVs down to things that are only what's directly relevant right. to the academic position we're applying for. I have, as recently as the last calendar year, had a f- faculty member who I knew from my graduate program um, who I was in contact with about whether or not she knew someone in a department that I was applying to tell me that I should remove the Disney store from my resume and LinkedIn page. Because it really, it, it detracted from my overall appearance. Um, number one, yeah, I worked my way through undergrad. I'm proud of that. But also the Disney store uh, shows customer service. It shows I can deal with the day after Christmas sales rush in the Disney store so I can deal with a high pressure environment. And it also shows a little bit of personality, right? Like, you know. One of my first jobs out of, uh, or my first job out of grad school, my boss loved that I had worked for the Disney store and would introduce me to people by saying, this is Chrissy, my briefing coordinator. She worked at the Disney store, you know, like, (laughs) so it serves all these purposes and also tells a little bit about who I am, but we're told in the academy, get rid of that stuff, hide it. No, when you're taking an inventory, look at all of the things that you have done, volunteer service, PTA, every job that you've worked to supplement your grad student stipend, all of it, because all of it is part of your knowledge and skill sets that you are bringing to the table. Yeah, and I think that and in that, in thinking also, like taking that inventory um, is thinking about, I think faculty that are working with students and people who are thinking about moving um, into a new career, diversifying your skills can be extremely useful. I mean, I'm still using plenty of my PhD skills. I'm I using a lot of quantitative skills that I d- didn't have before. I'm, some of it I did, but I um, identify as an evaluator that uses mixed methods, meaning quantitative and qualitative approaches. And 
you know, it would have been really helpful if I had taken a statistics course in, in my PhD program instead of being, when we do graduate research, we tend to be focused on a mono method kind of thing. But in the, in the workforce, we're using lots of skills all the time. So thinking about that, what, if you want to get training or if there's a career you're thinking about trying it out is really thinking about what skills might you add um, and diversify and give giving students an opportunity to try those things out. I mean, now I'm teaching people how to use Excel and do things like that. And, and we are always joking about the fact that I'm, I'm the qualitative researcher teaching people how to use Excel. So, um, I would definitely echo um, you know everything about skill development and um, I think informational interviews is a huge thing especially if you're at an institution right now there are a million administrative positions at that institution that you have access to and you can go talk to them and most of the time they are very willing to sit down with you probably even quite flattered by it um, that you want to talk to them um, in addition to that I'd just like to note a couple more sites that um, job sites in particular highredjobs.com um, that site you can search regionally you can search by position they have both non-academic and non-academic jobs on that site um, and I find it really useful because you can sort of fill out what you're looking for and they send you daily job listings um, which you might not be looking for a job right now but um, it sort of helps you like I read those e I read the email every single day and just look at what's out there um, and maybe something comes up that's like oh I I I want to practice I need to get my cover letter out there I need to get something out there um, the other one that I would think um, imagine PhD which is a new um, site that AR is a uh, partner with um, there's a panel on it tomorrow yes. I think um, and then Inside higher ed, as well as the Chronicle of Higher Education, I'm assuming that a lot of you already read that to begin with, but both of those sites have job sort of connections. Um, uh, the Chronicle of Higher Education, I think, has Chronicle Vitae now, um, which is a job site, and they actually will partner you with like mentors that have similar skill sets and skim similar interests, um, sort of broadening your network. Um, and then inside higher ed, you can they they also have job postings. So I would just make a pitch to, um, you know, start reading those sites. And it's another similar to LinkedIn. It's another way to sort of get the lingo for that you know alt ac job that you might want to apply for. That's great, Amy. I two other websites. My personal favorite is Indeed.com. Mm. That's where I found my job at the Harvard Divinity School. Yes. And the Idealist has a yes. great job oh, yeah. search as yes. well, um, job site as well. Those, yeah. those are both great. Yeah. That's it. Okay. So we have about 30 minutes left. I want to take time for Q&A. So hand up for in the front. Mm -hmm. Take it away. I think I was the last one to arrive. The first shall be last. Anyway, um, <laughs> thank you very much. I have a question about being overqualified. Uh, sometimes I feel like uh, hiding my PhD. So first interview I had, I'm at Harvard now. I targeted Harvard when I was looking for administrative jobs because in the Boston Cambridge area, they um, pay staff very well and they have great benefits. I also really had been dreaming throughout grad school at BU of getting into Widener. Um, which is their main library. Yeah. I can get into Widener now. 
Um, and my first interview, so interestingly, um, I did not put the PhD on my resume until I defended. And the day after I defended, I added comma PhD to my name in the header of my resume, and I immediately got a call from HR. HR really wanted to find me a place. Um, they sent me into a department for an interview, and it was clear that the hiring managers had no idea why I was there. And someone sat down across the table from me with my resume printed out and had written in the margins next to my PhD, good, question mark? <laughs> I did not get that job. Um, so one of the things that I have found is you need to have a good elevator pitch for why you're making this transition. And even though the realities of the job market are very apparent to everyone, um, particularly the closer you are to academia, uh, that's not you, that can't be your only answer. They want to hear why you want this position. Um, and for me, that was I want to continue to be um, in a role that allows me to support education and be part of the intellectual life of a university. Um, but I don't want to do that in a faculty position because I don't like the shape of that, that role as it's available to me. And I like living where I live. I don't want to have to move. Um, and that's been enough for me. Um, but the other thing I've realized is the jobs that I've gotten have been where hiring managers were willing to take a chance on someone who didn't come straight down the exact path they would have expected. So that takes a little more time, right? Because you don't fit the exact narrative of a standard person going into whatever field X, Y, or Z. Because, you know, we're at AAR, PhDs in religious studies are a dime a dozen around here, but not out in the general workforce. So I think just being patient and realizing that it's going to be about finding a good fit and finding someone who will love introducing you by saying that you worked at the Disney store, you know, who are, who are interested in the different path that you have taken. I, I think I would just sort of echo that. Um, it was something that we sort of didn't really broach in our conversation is sort of a lot of the faculty pushback that I've gotten um, about this programming that we're doing is, well, why even do a PhD? If you're not going to go the academic route, why even do a PhD? And I think I think I don't want to leave. Like when I finish in the spring, I don't want to leave my PhD off of my resume. I want to own that PhD. Um, and I think just making the argument, like Chrissy said, whether it's in an interview or in your cover letter, um, that your depth of knowledge is important. Um, I think I would just sort of say that, yeah. Hi, thank you for all the website suggestions, and um, I'm excited to go look. Um, so I have two related questions. One, can you um, sort of specifically identify some of the skills that are associated with a humanities PhD, and also what kinds of employers are looking for um, the kinds of skills that a humanities PhD is at least thought to, to have? Oh, sure. Um, yeah, uh, I can offer a couple, and I'm sure everyone can, can help fill in uh, the rest. A few that, that I see quite commonly, um, one would be communication skills, particularly the, the ability to write, but also, oh my goodness, if you've been teaching, 
even more than your research, teaching is what uh, translates into so many different areas. And if you have stood up in front of undergraduates and delivered presentations, you can do that in any sort of setting. I have a friend in the Boston area who does corporate training. Um, and, and yes, she's not delivering content that reflects her, her doctoral expertise, but she's using that, that communication skill. I mean, trust me, this is, is something you all can do uh, you know, better than, than the average person out there. Um, writing, yes. Um, and then also the ability to, to think critically and take information and, and put it into a larger context. There are lots of jobs that involve analysis and research, maybe not the core of the job and maybe not related to the content that you studied, but I'm guessing, you know, program evaluation and these sorts of things um, day in and day out. So um, any uh, job in, in industry that I think involves communication um, or, or research, uh, like I always tell people, you know, analysis, research, um, communication, those are, are great, you know, keywords to search on Indeed or something like that. In the nonprofit world, development roles, communication roles, marketing roles, absolutely. Um, yeah, and in academic administration, likewise, um, those sorts of things. But I think those are some of the things that, that humanists in particular bring to the table. Yeah, I would agree with all of that in the sense that uh, I'm using I'm, I'm doing trainings, um, you know, I'm using my oral presentation skills, I'm writing a lot. I would say that as there was a lot of unlearning academic writing, and so be very careful about that. Um, in my first uh, job as a performance auditor, they really wanted to know that I could adapt my writing to their office style, right? That, that we had a style guide because we were, you know, um, publishing these public reports and we were actually co-writing them and so we had to you know it had to be coherent and that kind of co-authorship was important so communication skills were really important um, but there was some concern I will say that some employers are really concerned about whether or not you can communicate to a wide audience right um, that that those writing skills need to be translated a little bit um, and then, uh, and also like sort of co-sign the, the idea of judgment. When I was an auditor, the biggest thing that they needed me to be able to say is, you know, I'm looking, we, whatever we were auditing, there was some standard that we either were doing the research to find the best practices for, uh, that thing that we were auditing. Like I know a lot about inventory management now and, um, and also about federal labor labor laws. So things that I so quickly learning that 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 research that I needed to say. Okay, so in this setting, this is the standard I'm judging uh, against. And then be, the ability to use that critical thinking judgment. They might not call it critical thinking, and so um, that's but it is that skill, right? That critical thinking skill. Um, the term analyst is definitely something that um, people are looking for that analytical skill to be able to say you can can take this information and make a judgment about whether what it means and whether it um you know meets the standard of whatever um thing you're um analyzing um yeah and i think yeah though those are the sort of the main ones i think i'm trying to think of other ones that i'm i'm using i'm 
I, my training is ethnographic. And so, and that actually helped me move a little bit more into program evaluation is more social science than human, human humanities. And I found in the beginning, it was a little bit difficult, um, to explain that I really wanted to do the qualitative parts of it. You know, I wanted to do focus groups. I wanted to do that kind of stuff. Um, so that was that was a little bit of a transition for me but i still do a ton of that field work and that outreach and in that when people talk about engagement work um so community engagement if that's part of your skills um that's a big thing that people are are looking for can you talk to people the average person on the street i just um, want to hop in and note that something that's happened going down the line is they're translating as they're talking. Right. So Courtney talked about your teaching skills, delivering trainings, right? And um, talking about oral presentation skills. So you don't say, I can teach. You say, I can train. I have oral presentation experience, that sort of thing. So that's that's happening sort of organically up here. As I have another one, too. Um, project management. Anyone who has written a dissertation is a project manager. You are the manager of an enormous project. Um, or, and I would also add another skill, collaboration or teamwork. Mm -hmm. Anyone who has sit, sat on a committee, um, I know that the grad students in the religion department at Temple, we all sit on committees. Um, whether it were grad student representative in a faculty meeting or we're doing undergraduate events, um, that sort of engagement um, and collaboration is really important and can be listed as a skill. Um, but the project management, I think, is really, really important. And you have all done it. So The only things I would add are languages are often seen as a very important and valued skill set. And we use the term actively engaging in a pluralistic world, um, the, not to be discounted any type of field education or volunteer work or activity, particularly with a religion degree, <laughs> can be a wonderful starting point for, uh, for building skill sets. And I'd just like to add, I want to turn your question on its head a little bit, because I feel like a question that we don't ask and we should be asking is, what do I like doing? Right? What do I like doing? What are the parts of being an academic that I have enjoyed? What are the parts that I don't like so much? Doing an inventory of your skills and what you want in a role. And I think Imagine PhD, which I haven't had the chance to explore, I'm looking forward to the panel tomorrow, um, helps you do that. It asks a lot of questions and de asks for detailed information about your skill set, your knowledge base, your experience what you want to do, what you think you're looking for, and then it matches you to jobs that are divided up into, I think, 16 different job families to start helping you think about what are the, you know, you know the things that you like doing, you kind of want to do, you know how to do, and this can help match you to things out there outside of the academy that will make use of those skills and that knowledge and the things that you want to be doing. So making sure that that's a piece of the question, right? You know, we, we don't just want to take the first thing that we could possibly get. We want to, we want something that's going to be fulfilling. And there are lots of things out there that can be fulfilling. So making sure you're asking me, what do I want to do, part of the question. I know I saw. Thank you. Uh, I just wanted to go back to that question about uh, whether you should actually really put your PhD on the resume. Because uh, you said, well, you know, you have to give a pitch about 
why, right? But the problem is very often that you don't get even a chance to talk about yourself because your resume is rejected from the get-go because it has a PhD. And uh, I was uh, I was in a situation, I live in a small city, Johnson City, Tennessee. So we have one um, state university there and people are not willing really to take chances with somebody that doesn't come from a traditional path when you go to administration. And I applied for a job as an international student's advisor. I have a degree in anthropology actually, and I was an international student here in this country. And they told me I wasn't qualified. So that you weren't that you weren't qualified or? that I was not qualified for that job and it was I just got a reply I didn't even get a chance to have an interview yeah. so and and I think that you know if I didn't say I, I have a feeling that if I didn't put my PhD on it I just said oh you know I'm a foreigner here you know I know a little bit about living in a different country that would have worked better than uh, saying that I have a PhD um So, so that's I think two things come to play here. First of all, when I was first applying for things coming straight out of graduate school, I had a paragraph in my cover letter um, that's not there anymore because now I've got the job experience that sort of erases that question. But um, explaining, you know, this is why I'm making this transition. Um, it's it was in the cover letter and I it got brought up in interviews and people wanted to talk about it. So I put that there. It was the, it was like my closing paragraph. Um, you know, putting it right out front. But I think, you know, you need to remember that the PhD is value added as well. And you can make the case for, you know, give yourself a paragraph in your cover letter that talks about all the skills and knowledge and experience that you gained during the PhD education. Um, and then networking, I would say, is another way to get around this. You know, if you know somebody who knows somebody, then they can get you in the door. And that's, and that's true whether you're fighting the PhD battle or not. You know, getting in the door is really, really hard if you don't know somebody, um, especially when you're in a tight job market. But um, any other thoughts on the panel? Um, I would think, I mean, I think it really, really, really depends on the setting, right? Yeah. That in my setting where it's, you know, use, it's, an, it's an applied research setting, um, my PhD is a bonus, even though it has nothing to do with what I'm doing, right? And there are situations where the having the PhD, I think, gives your um, resume a second look, right? It sort of makes you stand out a little bit, and that can be good um, depend in, when there's like a sea of applicants, right? Um, so that it depends it really depends on the the employer i think where people are concerned is that you're going to cost too much money yeah right that that because you have a phd and in, in many other settings you know um having more credentials does mean more pay and so they're worried that you would cost too much and that's why they would not want to even consider so again, having a, um, a way of explaining in a more one-on-one -on -one basis or in a cover letter saying, you know, I'm willing to start at the bottom, right? And I mean, like I worked, I was an intern as a performance auditor, like which with a PhD, which it sounds crazy, but it was what I needed and to get me in the door in the way, in a way, right? So 
Yeah. Yeah, and I, I would definitely echo that. Um, I mean, I started in the registrar's office tra- um, processing transcripts, <laughs> um, like hundreds of transcripts a day. Um, but I would also add that, I mean, if you're at all concerned about this, look at the staff pages on these websites for the company that you're applying for or um, like look what other people other people's credentials are that might give you a a sign that maybe they don't value the PhD Um, but if you really love it just try it and see what works I I mean it's it's hard to determine sometimes I'm sorry we we discussed um, some of the skills common to PhDs in humanities um, in terms of those general points, which I really appreciated. But I wondered if you'd also talk some about the reasoning process of cashing out your content area. For example, I'm a biblical scholar. Um, I work a lot in feminist and womanist type issues. I do a lot with uh, Jewish Christian Muslim relations. I do a lot with social justice issues in my official work. Um, so I think, well, if I leave the academy, I want to think through a where would I go with that? So mm-hmm. can you say something about the how you start that process of the different locale if you're going to follow through your subject area interest? I will say even that um, I actually see some really strong connections, but that's not always visible to other people. So I think <laughs> that for me, so my... Uh, PhD was in um, comparative literature and religion and women's studies, but I um, I was an ethnographer, so I typically explain to people now who are not in religion that uh, I did anthropology of religion and, and literature is what I say, so it's clear with sort of my methodology. And I was really interested in how aesthetics play out in communities and how shape communities. And now I'm I'm evaluating public art in communities and community impacts, right? So for me, and I, I, I don't know if your question is more about explaining to other people or if it's more about how you, how you follow those interests that led you into your academic work into back, like into the world in other places. It seemed like a comparable inventory question. Right. Your skills and all your volunteer and all that stuff but also the questions and context and changes you can make that. Mm-hmm. So more that internally. And I think, yeah, I think for me, I, I had nonprofit administration work before I went to grad school. And so I had started thinking about, oh, I have all these research skills. I'm really interested in somehow benefiting the nonprofit <laughs> sector and, and communities with these research skills, looking at community asset mapping and things like that. And when... I started looking into program evaluation, I discovered that there were sort of subsectors, right? There's, you know, public health and education and international development and uh, didn't really fit into any of them. And it was when I started, when I saw how this was, the conversation was starting in the arts, it was like, oh, religion, for me, the way I approach religion is very much uh, from an aesthetic perspective. And so in my mind, is really the same things. I'm talking about narratives. I'm talking about how people create meaning in communities. And uh, so for me, it was like when I saw that, particularly through the Public Fellows Program, when I saw these positions posted, I was like, it clicked that that's, well, that was the right place to translate 
my content knowledge, even if it never it wasn't clear to everyone else why I was I was doing that. And I would also just add really quickly, sort of on the ground work, we use search terms for our research, use them on job sites, like on websites. Google. If, if you're if you're looking for a nonprofit job, I mean, go to Idealist, which is mostly nonprofits, and search the key terms that you just laid out that, that you use all the time in your own academic research. See what comes up. But also Google and see yeah. what comes up in terms of organizations that that have these terms in their websites and their or you know, on LinkedIn, statements. yeah, or on yeah. LinkedIn, yeah. Yes. Another plug for LinkedIn. Yeah. Okay, I think we have time for one more question. So this is kind of following on that question. Um, I would imagine that at least some of us in this room are ourselves religious believers or religious practitioners, uh, and have much skill within our own specific religious um, milieu <laughs> of uh, ministry or community service or uh, volunteer, what, what have you. Uh, and, and you mentioned the, the significant importance of uh, religious literacy, right? Uh, do you have any ideas on how to if you're, for example, um, applying for a secular institution, is there a good way to make that known where it's not, hi, I'm going to proselytize you, that, you know? <laughs> I mean, it's tricky, um, for sure. I. I mean, a part of why I've worked on how I represent my PhD is that when I showed up in my job and was like, I have a PhD in religion, I had like fear, yeah. uh, <laughs> like, you know, horror, all of these. I mean, particularly in the arts, like it's not a friendly place for, for religion. Um, and so that was so learning how to represent that in a way that was not sort of alienating took me some time. Uh, I think. The volunteer, I think that, and it's something I've, I've been trying to figure out how to, how to translate on my CV, the volunteer work in religious communities that from, for in my, is separate from, for me, from my academic research. Um, so thinking of it as volunteer work, like serving leading communities and things like that leading committees or uh yeah, i was gonna say break it into its constituent pieces right like what service have you done within right. the organization that's what i would suggest um and it would again depends kind of in the on the context whether or not they that's going to require some explanation and and i've been really i mean it's not on my linkedin profile and i have not typically put it on my cv but i could imagine there would be a situation where that would i would really want to showcase those skills and so thinking very carefully about the the, the setting and what skills might be useful um and thinking about it you know as nonprofit experience i sometimes call it like faith-based nonprofit work and right. I think it's also thinking so. about what kinds of experience we're talking about i think that employers generally would be much more welcoming of something like treasurer of the local religious organization and might be more leery of, you know, leading faith-based outreach. Well, and that's what's tricky, right? Yeah. If we've been involved in ministry, and that's right. a big part of it. Right. Right. 
And I mean, I would I would also add when talking about like how you represent that knowledge and literacy that you have, using words that like diversity and cultural literacy rather than religious literacy. Um, and you know, obviously, we're all sort of academics and can argue about the meaning of all of those words. Um, but when you're applying for jobs, someone will know, someone will more likely know what it is to be culturally sensitive or have worked with diversity and inclusion rather than religious literacy or, you know, your specific, you know, pastoral work or something like that. And again, the, the word religion is a third rail. Right. Like moving outside of religious <laughs> right. studies, people yeah. become very nervous and are, you know, worried you're going to proselytize or you're going to have stereotyped conservative ideas about things that right. would not be good for their organization. So... Amy made a good point earlier about picking up the word deliverable. And I think it's important to understand the language of the employer that yes, you're looking at, for sure. particularly if they're a mission-driven organization, to the extent that you can really mirror the language they use and, and become very familiar, mm -hmm. that, that will help. And the language of the job description itself yeah. as well. So. All right, well, thanks, everybody. It's 6.30. I want to release you. everyone to dinner and drinks. Thank you so much to our panelists for thank joining us you. today for this conversation, and thank you for being here as well.